Skating past 7 o'clock. Time for Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, they say that there's slow weeks in sports, and, you know, statistically, I mean, if you were going to count the hours of coverage of sports, this probably is one of the slowest weeks of the year. Still plenty to talk about here on Iron Sports, and I'm going to love this episode because we're finally going to get to dip into baseball a little bit. We've touched on it, but we're always so busy with everything else. Baseball, it's America's pastime, and even if it seems to be dwindling the viewership across the country, we're still huge baseball fans. Yeah, I mean, I love baseball, and I went to the, the Marlins game uh, this past week, so it was exciting to go down there to see what's happening in that stadium and with the Marlins. I saw them play Padres, which the Padres are a very young team that has uh, some really good stars. They really do. And it was good to go down to that game and, and, and see that. But no, I love to talk about baseball because we had the trade deadline coming up in two weeks. Uh, and that and The Hall of Fame induction was this week, so mm. lots to talk about. Yeah, and you know we're going to touch on, uh, you know, the trade deadline's right around the corner, and although baseball does have a trade deadline they seem to make trades months after the fact but that's a different story but you know the Padres are on one of those teams that's on the cusp of should we be buying or selling here I mean there's a lot of teams that have this weird um I guess purgatory of not knowing what to do with their with their talent so it'll be interesting to see you know what what they can do and like you said they've got a lot of young stars this is a team that's up and coming for the future well I mean that's the question is that teams like San Francisco with Madison Bumgarner people thought they were going to be quote sellers but now they're in the playoff race they're going to be maybe buyers or not just make any moves themselves so it's going to be what's happening in the National League that so many teams now Everybody but the Marlins realistically has a chance to make the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. So they're all now suddenly, do you want to give up on your season right now and uh, for the next two months and call it a day? Or do you want to hang in there and try to make the playoffs? And who knows what, you know, in baseball, when you get the playoffs, anything can happen. Yeah. And, and with the lack of sellers, it's going to drive the price up on some on the few guys that do get put out there. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I I. Even like the Yankees, you know, they've got the best record in the American League. There's still moves that I sh- think that they should make, you know, and so, but, but they're obviously going to be buyers. But yeah, there's so much, especially in the National League, so, so much in the middle, you really don't know. Well, that's the law of supply and demand. When yeah. there's, when there is, a, when there's a, a lot of demand and very little supply, prices go up. So, <laughs> it's true. Um, will, will you just real quick, you think uh, your boy Josh Bell should be on the, uh, on the market? I know the Pirates aren't going to. Vasquez, their reliever, is someone who I think would probably go to. The Pirates have shown this tendency to let go of their relievers and trade them. Mm-hmm. And if they do any type of move, it would be trading one of their relievers to the Dodgers. It makes sense. There's this one trade they have, like Will Smith. Anybody who watches a lot of baseball knows that this Dodgers have like three great young catchers, mm-hmm. and there's one catcher, Will Smith. So the rumor is that Vasquez, who's their reliever, will be traded for Will Smith. It would make perfect sense because the Pirates catcher Cervelli has got, I think, a sixth concussion and doesn't want to mm-hmm. be a catcher anymore. So they're really looking for a good young catcher, and Will Smith has shown that he's a good young catcher. And the Dodgers have other catchers in their system. The Dodgers have a wealth of everything. Wealth of everything. <laughs> so that would be one of the trades that would make sense. But the Pirates have uh, have shown a tendency in the past to get rid of their relievers. You're right that that is usually where they go to when they do have to get rid, you know, or you have to give up assets. They've been going there. They don't like to give up position players. The biggest splash I could think that they've made in the last decade though has to be Chris Archer last year I mean they, they're not uh, tr- Pirates aren't traditionally big um, deadline movers but Archer hasn't played that well I think t- I think Tampa good knew start that, last week yes but I think Tampa was seeing we're going to get rid of him yeah. I think it was a hope you know <laughs> hoping that they would they would I think Tampa saw that he was it seemed like a great trade from the Pirates perspective but maybe I think Pirate fans right now aren't as happy with that trade we have a great interview coming up for you at 740 
Um, Ira, tell us a little bit about Terrence Mann and C.Y. Young, because Terrence Mann is a name that you may not know right now, but this could be a name that's plastered across your TV screen for the next decade. Well, I think people who are big Florida and basketball fans down here in Florida probably know because he was a, a, a four-year star at Florida State. Yes. Um, but he and, and the coach C.Y. Uh, Young of, uh, of Florida State was I was at the draft, mm-hmm. so I met them at the draft, and Terrence was so drafted. Always networking. Yes, always on the and Terrence. <laughs> it was like at midnight, and when he was drafted, and uh, and Terrence was and Terrence was drafted by the Clippers. So I was been working with like it last like three four weeks trying to get them on the show. But Terrence has been very busy. He has to fly out to L.A. He has to do his summer league basketball. Mm-hmm. It and then suddenly the Clippers get Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, and they become the star team. So it's interesting from from Terrence Mann's perspective is that he's going to be maybe like the seventh or eighth or ninth player on the team, see plenty of time on that team, but on a team that's going to be one of the top teams of the NBA. Yeah. So. I think Terrence is a great story. It, it, it's a great story because Terrence is an amazing person, uh, comes from an ama- a, a, a super family, mm-hmm. and really showed how he worked hard. He's not one of the. He's not a one and done. He came in, stayed there four years, improved every year, and came into came to school as, as someone who is known as not a shooter, not a good shooter mm-hmm. at all, shooting like twenty percent from threes, and suddenly became a forty percent three point shooter. Uh, raised his free throw shooting from sixty percent to like eighty percent, mm-hmm. and that's what got him drafted. So it's great to see a story like. Terrence because he was not have been drafted after if he left his first or second or even third year. Yeah. It was just hard work. And uh, CY has worked with him uh, tremendously all these years, and, and they definitely have a bond. And it's a, just, I love the interview. We did the interview three days ago, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to air it and have everybody hear of it. It, it really is great. Um, you may not remember this, but he, FSU is the team who knocked out John Morant and the upstart Murray State Bulldogs. So he, you know, he had a hand in that, knocking out the phenom of, of the NCAA tournament. And I one of my favorite parts is something that you'll get to hear later in the interview is what happened when he found out his team was getting Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. So that, yeah. we'll, we'll tease that. Yeah. But yeah, we'll tease that. But it was also even his junior year, they beat Missouri, Xavier and Gonzaga and they lost mm. to Michigan. If they would have beat Michigan they, in the lead eight. So Terrence had a I mean, before that, Florida State went five years before Terrence got there without making the NCAAs. And then he got to the tournament three times. So he really made his mark at Florida State as one of the best players to ever play at Florida State. Mm. And uh, I'm glad we had him on the show. Or we're going to have him on the show, but we interviewed him and see why is a tremendous coach tremendous person i love the story the story it's a great we like to tell stories on iron sports and it's a great story it's one of my favorites so i'll stick around for that it's at 7 40 um ira you didn't uh, go crazy this week but you took in some baseball here in south florida not that there's that much else to do unless you were going to ireland but uh so tell us about what you did well it was. I went down to the Marlins game against the Padres. Uh, it was interesting. We sat. It was my dad's birthday, so I was able. We got there early. We went to the club seats, which I've sat there last year too, which I like behind home plate, mm-hmm. and you have like the free food and, and everything. It's really nice. And they really they renovated the entire club. Now you can sit in the club and watch batting. They have batting cages underneath. Crazy. So and that's the Marlins batting cages. So even if you go back in the third or fourth inning, a lot of the Marlins spend almost most of the game back there practicing. They're not all sitting at the bench mm. like they're in there hitting you can watch them hit and i thought that was pretty neat because i haven't seen that there's any no other, stadium yeah i've never seen that ever and then it was nice because they did have the food is different they have the small little plates and you can bring it out to the stands they have little trays you can bring out it was really nice sitting there the service was great it was it's good i mean it's it's all inclusive it comes with your ticket so you get the food uh you know you have to pay for your drink and then you get to uh have the seat too mm. so it's all you can eat food so you really want to go and sit in there when you you haven't had lunch 
Um, let's talk about the game itself. Um, like you said, they were taking on uh, San Diego, and and they've got a lot of players to um, keep your eye on because they're going to be. You got to see Chris Paddock, I think. Who um, I think he was actually originally a Marlin. He was dealt to them uh, maybe like four years ago from the Marlins, but this guy's an up and coming superstar. Yeah, I mean, I want to say something. It was interesting to be the other aspect of the game is only 8,000 were there. They closed the upper deck um, and the roof was closed, which I don't like it. I like when the roof's open, Me but too. it was too hot to have it open. So that's why they had it. Um, but it was very quiet, of course, with 8,000 <laughs> in a place like that. And it's weird. Like you're used to going to the minor league games. There's lots of activity between innings. There's nothing between the innings mm-hmm. at all. I mean, the most excitement on the field was a bird somehow got on the field <laughs> and it was like the bird just wouldn't leave. And like after one inning, they knocked the bird out, but then the bird would come back and just stand there and no, it wasn't afraid of anybody. I think that was like the most exciting aspect of it. <laughs> That's their in-house entertainment. Yes, but the Padres have uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. and his Fernando Tatis Sr. was with the Cardinals, mm-hmm. and he's this 20-year-old, great young, one of these great young players. He's a superstar almost already. Oh, right, and they signed Eric Hosner last year uh, to a big big money contract, and he uh, from Kansas City, and he's one of their stars, and then you have Machado. So it was interesting. I was listening to the game while I'm watching it. So you're listening to in one ear and listening to the announcers. They said, the Padres are doing exactly what the Marlins are going to... Marlin, the Marlins are following the Padres model. And I'm like, no, they're not. I mean, the Padres <laughs> have the best best farm system in baseball. Mm. They also have shown that they're willing to pay $300 million to find Machado and $180 million to sign Hosner. And they've also drafted really great. There's no way the Marlins are going to sign. And yeah. nobody... Nobody is going to sign with the Marlins knowing even if they offer the money because they'll think they'll be traded unless you have mm-hmm. a no trade clause. So you see what happened before. So they weren't following that. But uh, the Marlins did have Jordan Yamato, who uh, was a, a rookie pitcher. He was undefeated going in. Yes. And he was 4-0 in the game. And he actually it, with that win. But then he got shelled the other night. And uh, um, the, Mar- the Padres pitcher was Logan Allen. He had 58 pitches, seven runs. It was a great game for the Marlins. I mean, Brian Anderson, I, these home runs were amazing. I mean, the air must have been flowing with it. With It was humid inside, mm-hmm. but also the roof was closed. But he had a, a Brian Anderson, a 440-foot home run. Uh, Cooper had a 440-foot home run. Uh, Sterling Castro almost had a home run that uh, it drove in three runs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so the Marlins went out to an 11-3 lead and held on to 12-7. to So it was a good win from considering the worst record in baseball to see a win from them it was nice for that you know it, it's nice you have to see some runs too i've been really unfortunate when i go to uh, marlins park i end up getting all the two nothing games you know and it's just never it'll even be mediocre pitchers so you think it's going to be a, a run scoring fest it just never really happens uh you're listening to iron sports this is the true oldies channel at 7 15 i'm mike balsamo um before we move on I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Francisco Lindor, uh, shortstop for the Indians, hit a one, one-handed home run yesterday. Bat kind of got away from him. He still made contact, but it's basically a one-handed home run. And this is all they're talking about this week in baseball. You think the balls are juiced, I? Well, I thought it was interesting that before the All-Star game, uh, Paul Manfred made a comment uh, that he felt that because J- Verlander made said, yeah. I think there's something with the balls. And Manfred said, we've done testing and the balls are flying out. They're, they're actually are flying. They're not juice, but they're 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 flying out of the parks more. And uh, but he goes, it wasn't on purpose and we don't really have control of it. But they do have control. They own the factories. And <laughs> I, I just don't understand Rollins. it. Yeah. I mean, if if uh, it's like saying like the car companies, if the if tires are popping all over the place, they have no control. <laughs> yeah, they have control. Just I don't know. I mean, figure out if they saw there's a problem and they, they know how to make baseballs. They've been making baseballs for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Then fix it. So I was I really felt like his answer was wrong. Like maybe it's, it's not juicing on purpose. But if they are, even if it's by accident, then fix the problem. How mm-hmm. hard it could be fixed? What the other base? 
fastballs are made. Uh, and some other pitchers have came out too now. Masahiro Tanaka from the Yankees has said it, it, the ball just doesn't feel the same. The only one really defending it is Scherzer, and he's just a perennial Cy Young guy anyways. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens if they do some kind of exploratory committee in the offseason. Who knows? But it, it's kind of taken away. I know you're not a big fantasy baseball guy, but when every player has 30 home runs, it takes away the fun from things like that. It's there, there, There's no standouts anymore. It's just like everybody seems to be a 240 hitter across the board with, with 30 home runs. Well, it's, it's also crazy. the nature of baseball is that it's, it makes sense now just to try to hit home runs yeah. and not try to work to work the counts and do those things and that's and, and get runners on base and steal bases. I mean, when we were younger, uh, Ricky Henderson would steal 120, 130 bases and Vince Coleman, now stealing bases is stupid and you should just be going, you should be going for a home run. But you should just be there and that's something that's hurting baseball is everyone just waiting for the home run especially for the purists like man i love i used to love the quote national league baseball style working accounts moving runners just don't see it that much anymore marlins still try to do it um move to the al we talked about it the yankees i don't know how these guys manage to just win night in and night out depend doesn't matter who they throw in the lineup but they win games i well, they took three or four from Tampa. They're now nine games up, and really they're just looking for that one starter. Stroman from the Blue Jays seems yeah. to be the person they're gonna, they could go after. Originally a Long Island kid. Right, right, right. Uh, I think that, but the Yankees are, now they have eight of the next 11 games against the Red Sox, and they could certainly want to eliminate the Red Sox. But it's amazing. The Yankees were able to get through all their injuries, and even Stanton is still not playing. He got hurt. He came back for a couple games and yeah. got hurt again. They're dealing with injuries. They just, they're so deep. I mean, they really, as I said before, the Dodgers and Yankees could feel two teams and probably both make the playoffs no you're absolutely right and that's you know we were talking earlier about uh potential trades i feel so bad for the guy clint frazier who came up did nothing but knock the cover off the ball there's just nowhere for him and that's why i think the yankees should be actively trying to move some of these guys i know they they want to build through the farm system but i think you built <laughs> it's time to go get that starter but like like you said i don't think madison bumgarner is going to be available anymore with uh the giants looking better and better and i don't know how Badly, Toronto wants a trade in division to give Strom, and he's still got two years of contract, uh, two years under contract after this. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, what about the rest of the AL? The Minnesota, this is an upstart team. Everyone thought the Indians, this was their division to lose, and they are losing it. They're losing it, but they've actually cut the lead. I mean, the lead was like a few weeks ago, like eight games, and now it's down to three. So I think Cleveland is there's a this is something that maybe both of the one of them, the loser of this division, could could get the wow card. But the Indians are definitely coming back and making a run, and that's why they're not going to be sellers. People think uh, they were going to trade their pitcher Bauer, but it looks like they're gonna they're gonna probably hold on to them, thinking that they're going to win. their again, the Indians are a team that should have been a, a seller, and now they're not a buyer, but actually just they want to compete and they want to stay in it. Yeah. And the Astros are six and a half games on the A's, and and uh, the Indians and the A's are leading for the wild card. The Rays are only one game back, and the Red Sox are three games back. Uh, Angels and Rangers like five and a half. But uh, in this, in this, in the AL, the White Sox, Seattle, Toronto, Kansas City, Detroit, Baltimore—they've all been eliminated. So you're looking for those teams, players from those teams that might be traded because those they've been, they're out of the race. Let's move to the um, National League. You you are definitely uh, you know good year to to be you know spending a lot of time in L A because this L A Dodgers team is just absolutely ridiculous. Well, they're 16 games ahead of of Arizona, who actually yeah. might make the yeah, playoffs as a bad. wild card. Um, but Atlanta is surprised people. But Washington, the funny thing is that Washington and Philly have hung in there, and Washington's playing better. Everybody thought Washington was going to be a seller, but now they're they're been, they're playing well, and certainly Scherzer is going to stay on that team. They're not going to trade him. And uh, Chicago's two games up over Milwaukee and St. Louis. That con- that division is very very close, and and uh, it looks like as I said, everybody's in it. Everybody and people like even the 
the Phillies, who've had this year where they haven't been happy. But they're so close, and these teams are so bunched together that a couple good weeks, and you're you're back in the race. Yeah. And and these teams, and the and the with August coming in September, I. I, I don't see teams being sellers. I, I think that most of the National League is going to just, besides like the Pirates making a move here or there, you're not going to see a wholesale uh, changes because I think everybody want, thinks that, boy, besides the Dodgers, we can get in there and make it to the, at least the uh, National League Championship Series. And once you get in, anybody can win. Uh, you know, so it's just, you got to be in it to win it. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see who ends up eking it out. But it's, uh, yeah, definitely tight when it comes to the wild cards in both the AL and the NL. Um, New York and Boston this weekend. You know, it's the first games in Boston this season. Yankees games in Boston. Well, they were supposed to play when they played in England. Yeah. Those were supposed to be home games, but they moved it to Boston. Yeah. And then I'm sure Boston was well not wasn't happy about that, but it was great <laughs> publicity for them. But that those games, so those were yeah. home games. But it's weird. It's almost August, and they haven't been to Fenway yet. But it's they'll kinda, play eight crazy. out of eleven now. Yeah. So this is a chance for Boston to finally. Not they haven't fired yet. They haven't. I mean, fired mean they haven't like got on this run, and they have all this talent and sale and Price and Porcello and Betts and Jackie Bradley Jr. And you're just waiting for the Red Sox to play like they did last year and. They're so good. That's why someone said, well, the Red Sox could be sellers. No way. No chance. If you're the Red Sox, I mean, the Red Sox, <laughs> if they go on a roll, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna win. They could, yeah. they could beat anybody. I mean, they could win the World Series. So why in the world would they be? And the, yeah. the Red Sox, they, they charge so much for their tickets and their fans. I, again, I, I, as a fan of these teams, if, if you're invested in, this, in the pennant race, you don't want them to be sellers. You want them to hang in there. And you, that team is, I mean, last year they were just a team of destiny. They everything they did worked out last year. Andrew Benintendi became a household name. He really has slowed down this year. But Rafael Devers is, you know, in the conversation for MVP right now, who came out of nowhere for them. So it's hard to pinpoint what's wrong with this team. And I agree with you. They could easily win 14 of 17 games and be right back, you know, in, in the AL East. So you got to be got to be careful there. Um, trade trade deadline, like you said, it's coming up. What do you think is going to happen, and what do you think should happen? I really think it's not going to be as much as we talked about. I think Stroman will go to the Yankees. I think they'll make a trade. But everyone talks about Zach Greinke for Arizona. Arizona's still in there. I don't think they trade trade him. I talked about the Pirates trade that I think is going to happen. I don't think Baumgartner is going to be traded or Bauer, or Bauer for the Indians won't be traded. So I don't think it's going to be maybe Noah Syndergaard for the Mets isn't going to be traded. Like no. I don't think it's going to be as great as people think it's going to be in terms of this trade deadline. I think teams are going to – you're going to see trades. But it's interesting this year. Trades do matter. They change the rules. There will not be waivers. So like you see these trades at the end of, end of uh, July and, and and through an I mean end of August is not going to happen this year. So actually, this is a true trade trade deadline. So yeah, there, they said that there might be a little bit more than hasn't passed because of true deadline, but it's exciting. But you know, after we went through what we went through for bat, for the NBA, it's not going to be as exciting as that. Nobody yet. Yeah, nobody's getting that hyped. Unfortunately, um, let's talk Hall of Fame because we we just had our inductions. I don't can't say I agree with everybody that got in, and I think that the scarcity of players and also the blackballing of some of the steroid guys may be helping this. But one thing everyone can agree on: Mariano Rivera, absolutely deserving. Well, first person to get a hundred percent of the votes. Yeah. Uh, I think it was he's viewed as. I mean, it's amazing with baseball all these years that they finally got one player that you know they forced they shamed all the people that would say, "Oh, they can't be on the first ballot." <coughs> so. He was the first person. Uh, Roy Ha Halliday got in. Now, he's unfortunately passed away yeah. in an airplane accident. Two-time Cy Young winner, 203 wins, 105 losses, hit a no-hitter in the postseason, played for Toronto and Philly. I, I, I like 
him getting I like Roy getting in because at for about four or five years he was the best pitcher in baseball. Easily. And I think that's the standard. I think I really I don't I want the Hall of Fame as being the Hall of Great, not the Hall of Very Good. And Roy Holiday was great. And I think he has the career, the longevity, but also the dominance. Now Marion Rivera was dominant for every year he played, so that was totally different. But I think I think Mussina got in at the end. I mean, he was his, it was a sixth ballot, but he was, had 270 wins, 153 losses. Mussina got in because I think people are realizing no one's going to get the 270 wins in a long mm-hmm. time, and he did. He I also felt that he was one of the best pitchers over a period of time. Always like, one of the best, never the best. Right, never the best, but but at that elite level, and he yep. pitched for the Orioles, pitched for the Yankees, pitched in big games, pitched in big playoff games. Um, he was there when Camden Yards was was like becoming real. When they were popular, when the Orioles were good. He was there when the Yankees were good. I, I was surprised it took him five ballots to get in, but I think he totally deserved it. Uh, he was born in Williamsport, which is interesting. And, uh, uh, I mean, he had great battles against Randy Johnson playoffs. I mean, I just remember, I do think playoff performance matters. Absolutely. Messina was a very good playoff pitcher. And in uh, 1997, he went 2-0 with a 1-2-4 ERA. He was amazing uh, in the postseason. 11 hits in 29 innings. Yeah, That's thought, pretty good. So, But I do think the other two, I think Lee Smith... I. First of all, he got in on the, they don't call it the Veterans Committee, but it was actually, he was up there. The most he ever got was like 49 or 50% Mm -hmm. and the ballots, and then they had to put him on another committee, but um, that, that got him in, but... He led when he retired. He had 478 saves, had a three, uh, three ERA, but I never viewed him as like the best closer. He was on nine different teams. Just didn't feel I like. I didn't even he know who he was. Did, well, he didn't feel like to me like a Hall of Famer. I mm. just, I don't think so. And Edgar Martinez is interesting. I think, I mean, he got on his final ballot. So it was 10 years, and then you're out if you get 75%. He had 18 years at Seattle, mostly all of them as a DH. Uh, he had 312 home runs, 2,200 hits, or 309 home runs. It wasn't really hit, hit 312. He was a seven-time All-Star, two-time batting champion, a good player. I, I think he was a great person. Everyone talks how mm-hmm. – I heard A-Rod talk to, about him for like a half an hour, how he was tremendous in teaching, and everyone thought he was – I mean, he's a great guy, um, whether that's why he got in or not. But uh, it's interesting that he's the first like really true GH to get in like that, besides Tommy was in, but but he was he was mostly – most of his games were his DH. Uh, I think he was right on the borderline. I, I would not put Lee Smith in, but, but Edgar Martinez, I'd have him. I, I agree with you there. And what you said is true. You know, growing up, Edgar Martinez was like the guy you looked up to. Like this guy does it right. You know what I mean? He, like you said, he didn't have an enemy in the world. He would just—he seemed like he—he was just a role model and well liked, and that probably uh, probably helped (laughs) getting in there a little bit. Harold Baines got in, I think, too. That's another guy, very fringe. Um, in my opinion, wouldn't, you know, good player. I don't know if he's one of the best of his generation. Ira, you have a bone to pick with Major League Baseball. You hate the extended netting, and we're about to start seeing it roll out. Well, Washington and Chicago have now extended it past to the foul poles almost mm-hmm. so today. But, I mean, if you watch ESPN, and they are just every time somebody even just gets hit, they're not even injured, they bring it up, it's a huge story, uh, they raise this this netting thing, and they're pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. They're like, I can't believe Major League Baseball doesn't extend it. I can't believe. Well, it's because the fans don't want it. Because if you sit, I go to these games, if you sit in the outfield, it bothers you. And I love how these the, the, the commentators state, well, you'll get used to it, and after 
an hour, you don't notice it. And I've sat in these, it, I notice it, people around me notice it. I think it's a huge distraction. It's going to make it impossible to see from these seats. And they're like, oh no, the netting is so advanced. Like it's amazing netting that it's invisible. It's not invisible. And I feel sorry. Yes, there's injuries. But as I said, I'm in Los Angeles. I see people on scooters all the time, flying around, hurting themselves. I mean, you could, <laughs> if you're concerned about baseball, there's a zillion places in the stadium you could sit where you're not near a foul ball. Um, and, and it's one thing to sit behind home plate because in home plate, you're sitting there watching the game and following the ball. When you're in the outfield, you cannot see. It's impossible to catch the ball. That's why baseball has been resistant to add it because I think people realize that they don't want to sit in those seats anymore. And it's, you're, you're taking now a huge part of your stadium uh, out where people don't want to sit in. Now you're going to bring maybe fans that, that, want, that like the netting, but I think the vast, the reason why I keep, Jeff Passan goes, is on ESPN constantly saying, I just don't know why they don't extend the nets. And the reason is their fans don't want it. And the fans are the ones paying the tickets to go to the games. And these reporters sit behind home plate in the press box. They're used to the netting because it's easier to watch when you're sitting behind home plate. Mm-hmm. But when you have to turn your head in the nets, you keep your, your optical views keep changing. It's hard to follow the game, hard to follow the action. It gives me a headache. And uh, I'm just, I'm upset. Like I just, I know it's coming and, but I, I think it's going to really hurt watching games. Yeah. You know, I, and I agree with you. If you're an adult bringing, say, two toddlers to a baseball game, you should know where to sit. Don't sit right in the hot zone off first and third base. There's plenty of other places to sit, like you said. If I'm going there as, an, as myself, I'm fine. But if I'm bringing a couple of little kids with me and I have to be watching them, I know not to sit there. And I just don't think that people take that into consideration as much. You're listening to Iron Sports. It's 729. This is the True Oldies channel. At 740, great interview with uh, recently drafted new L.A. Clipper Terrence Mann and his coach from Florida State University, C.Y. Young. You're not going to want to miss this. Ira, we had about, f- we plan on doing about 15, 20 minutes of golf. We're only going to be able to do about 10. But I don't want to, like, downplay someone's achievement, but this was kind of the most anticlimactic major I can remember. And sh- congrats to Shane Lowry for making it that way. Well, I think it was anticlimactic because I think, it, but if you're in Ireland, it was very climatic. Oh, like, they loved it. Was it was huge. I mean, Shane Lowry was an Irish golfer. This was important for 68 years, the first time it was returned to Royal Portbush. So they're very excited about the about the tournament being there and the fact that an Irish person won it. Now, it was in Northern Ireland, not technically Ireland, but you could see the Graham McDowells, the Patty Harringtons, the... Uh, the Darren Clarks so excited about this mm-hmm. and about and Rory McIlroy of course and that's what made this so special and the fans were into it they drew 245,000 it was pouring down rain it was windy and the fans loved it and I just don't know if they had weather conditions at a course in America if fans no. were going to sit out there and watch <laughs> those weather I mean, it was and it was great to watch and it was good and it was so so we're saying because you know none of the Americans that we know were in serious contention on Sunday but in Ireland this was a big deal and in Europe this was a huge deal. I heard someone say Shane Lowry will never pay for a beer again. (laughs) So So tell us how we got there. Well, first of all, I'm breaking this down to sort of the extent of like Rory McIlroy. Rory was the heavy favorite to come into this. It was almost disgusting, his odds. Major, yeah, very heavy favorite because he knew the course, grew up playing the course. He has the course record. The course, had a house (laughs) there, but he he, uh, had a quadruple bogey on the first hole. And after that, he shot a, a 79. I mean, to think that this is your course that he once shot a 61 as a 19-year-old, and now he shot a 79. He was bogeying double bogeys on, and then the double bogey on 16 was probably worse when he was like a foot away from the hole and just like it was like Happy Gilmore putting one foot, missing another foot, <laughs> and then not making it. And he ended up on a triple on the 18th for his final 79. And he came back on Sunday, and it was I Saturday. I mean, I'm sorry, 
Friday, the second day. <laughs> so he came back, and I and and he was uh, he at, missed a cut by one stroke. Right, my, he was a, he was a plus <laughs> he was a plus eight, and he missed a cut by one stroke. And and it was weird though, but he had a chance because on sixteen he he just knew he it was either going to be two or one where the cut line was. It was ended up being one. So mm. he was at he got to plus two at sixteen, but on seventeen and eighteen he wasn't able to get that birdie uh, that he needed to get to plus one. And on eighteen he was sitting there right in the fairway and just missed the green and uh, started crying when he lost and was emotional but he's playing with Gary Woodland who was the winner of the US Open and he didn't make the cut either he had plus three so mm. it was interesting watching those guys like battle for that and that was that was the story of the first two days is they didn't make the cut and then of course Tiger who um, he you know he, he, he hasn't played it's, he came out that he went to Thailand for two weeks hadn't played that much uh, first drive he had he grimaced and uh, the wheels totally came off between five and ten he had bogey double bogey 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 and he finished a 78 uh the second day he on friday he did better he but um he just was horrendous on par fives he ended up being plus six missing the cut by five shots um this condensed schedule really hurts tiger I mean, the way that he has to go yeah. from tournament to tournament you think he's gonna be in contention in the masters where he can time himself he's not even playing in the world golf championships this this weekend and also when it's cold He's just not into it. I mean, you can see that the cold and the weather really bothers him. And that's why I hope he plays the Honda next year and the players and, and, the, and, the, and Arnold Palmer. The tournaments in Florida, I think, suit him. Uh, Phil, Phil Mickelson, uh, he lost 15 pounds. He, for two weeks, he only drank coffee and water which I thought was really a weird way to lose 15 pounds. But he was five <laughs> over in the first round with seven bogeys. Uh, and then he finished at 70, 74 on day two. So he was a plus eight. And here's someone who was, he won the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. He thought this was going to be this year. 18th in Masters, 72nd in PGA, 52nd in the Open. Missed the cuts here. He's turning 50 next year. So this could be, you know, this was one of his last shots for get really doing well. He didn't do well. Adam Scott missed the cut. Everyone thought he was going to be good. Jason Day missed the cut, which is interesting. He was it's four under par yeah. through 12 holes on day two on Friday four under the cut is one and he still missed the cut by one by bogeying every the five straight holes with a double bogey and uh, uh, and David Duvall former number one in the world now he's older he doesn't play but he shot a 91 he had a quadruple <laughs> bogey on, on a five and then his worst one was on par five seventh he had a 14 a 14 it's like golfing with me yes and he was he was it was unbelievable and then he, one of it was because he was playing the wrong ball he broke up holes I don't understand how you can play the wrong ball when you're when That's you have patties and everything yeah. you mark it and you know um, and Jordan Spieth got off to a he got off to an okay start he was minus five three shots off the lead um and then Brooks, though, Brooks Kepka hung in there. I mean, he had made, he's now made 21 cuts straight, cuts in majors, the active leader of that. He was at minus five also. And J.B. Holmes uh, was the leader on Thursday at minus five and also on Friday at minus eight. And uh, Holmes, I saw him at the Genesis. He won the Genesis Classic mm -hmm. and since then did nothing. He, uh, he was miscut at the Palmer, the Players, Memorial, everything. And so he won like 1.3 million, 1 at the Genesis in L.A. and since then $100,000. You caught, too, that uh, him and Brooks were having a little disagreement. Well, they started they 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 started playing on Sunday. That's when they had mm. the problem on Sunday uh, because he's notoriously a very slow player. And so Brooks looked at him and thought it was like trying to to push him. And they made comments actually the fact that JB plays so slow. And I think Brooks's comment was he's not so slow when he approaches the ball. It's just he's not ready. Mm. It's like you know you're going to hit the ball. Put your glove on. Like get position. Get yeah. thinking about the shot. And I don't think Brooks is wrong for calling it out. I mean I think there's a point where you just got we got. 
got to speed the game up and it is and not speed it that it's unnatural, but you just got to have a natural way to play golf. And when you're not even ready to take the shot, you don't have your glove on when you know it's your next thing. I mean, you wouldn't want to be playing as out uh, with your friends and have someone that's slow. So, so why should it be like this on a tournament? Um, but it was interesting on, on Friday, Kyle Stanley hit the ball out of bounds. He didn't call four and his partner, Robert McIntyre yelled at him for not calling Four, and then it hit McIntyre's caddy's mother. So then they got in a fight. They got in a fight over that. And then the other scandal was during the weekend or Friday, Thursday, Friday was Shoffley. Alexander Shoffley got penalized for using the wrong driver. And he uses, I guess they've been testing the driver, and he's saying, well, everybody uses his driver. I just was pulled out. It should, he thinks that every driver should be tested, not just random testing. And uh, it became sort of a scandal over that for that. So what happened on uh, Saturday? Uh, it was mainly Kepka was waiting for Kepka to make a move. He played great. I mean, he almost had six birdie putts in a row. He shot uh, seven under. He was finished at seven under, but he just could not really make a move whatsoever at all. And uh, it was just it was just a tough day for him because I felt like he could really have gone you know much lower. Lowry, sixty three. He shot. Uh, he had birdies at 10, 12, 15, 16, 17. He went to minus sixteen. He took a four shot lead over Fleetwood. And then Spieth is interesting. Spieth ranks. 166 in the tour in third round scoring average. Third round. So he's 16th in the first round. He's second in the second round, but only 166 in the third. And he was, he was, he didn't, he didn't. It's a reason they call it moving day. Yeah. Moving down the leaderboard. And he didn't move. And then we come into Sunday and Lowry, if people remember, I was at this tournament and I missed it because I'd actually go to the NBA Finals Game 7. It was the, uh, I, I had to go back, flew back, but it was in 2016 at Oakmont. Um, uh, they uh, Lowry was against uh, Dustin Johnson. That's when Lowry had a five-stroke read in the third round, and Johnson came back and uh, and won the tournament, uh, and he blew it. And it was, you know, so Lowry was asking about all these questions. He's 32 years old golfer. He won the Irish Open when he was a jun- junior at 2009 as an amateur. He won the 2015 Bridgestone, and then of course he had the uh, 2016 disaster at the U.S. Open when he blew the five-shot lead. But really, he hasn't played well. I mean, I looked at that. I mean, he's missed the cut. I mean, if you look at like the last few years he didn't even enter the masters and last year he missed the cut of the u.s open missed the cut of the british open uh he missed the cut of pga uh, missed the cut of british i mean it's like unbelievable it, it's interesting he marks the his ball with a shamrock which is uh <laughs> so he's very irish but every everybody knew on sunday the winds were going to make a factor that was uh the winds were at like 40 50 miles an hour they moved the tournament up so you're just waiting for somebody for by an hour waiting for someone to take that lead early malinari shot a five under but besides that none of the people everybody sort of was when they started the leaders all the top like final 12 groups nobody broke par they were all playing in the bad weather and uh uh, but, you know, you thought there was a chance because of the weather being so bad, Lowry being so in- inexperienced that maybe he would come back to the pack. But he didn't. Mm-hmm. He's used to this. I mean, this was he was the wrong person to have, <laughs> Good have point. A, a, a seven shot le- a lead going into into the tournament and into the final round. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, just some other golfers on Sunday. Dustin Johnson finished with the 76 uh, plus three for the tournament. I mean, you were waiting for him to make some sort of move. I mean, he really for someone who's number two in the world. Uh, he has only one major win, and he finished second in the Masters, second in PGA. Just was waiting for maybe him to make a move. I, I agree with you on that. And Justin Thomas started the day minus four. He had four birdies, and then the last few holes, he had a triple bogey, two bogeys. He ended up with minus three for the day. I mean, again, you thought that maybe Justin, he has one major. This could be a year he would get it, but he finished. He won. Um, he, he had 12th in the Masters, missed the, uh, didn't play the PGA Championship, missed the cut of the U.S. Open, and just finished 11th. Uh, Spieth was a 
complete disaster. He started at seven under and ended up going plus six on the day, 77 to finish minus one. Uh, again, Spieth, who's a guy that, you know, a few years ago in 2015 was like first or, or second or third in all the majors. Uh, this year was 21st in the Masters, 65th in the Open, and only finished 20th in the British. Uh, Finau finished third. Tony Finau, he's a guy that everyone likes. I mean, he finished, he finished, I think people like that he's this good young player, uh, shot a 71, but hung in there. Uh, Ricky Fowler ended up shooting just a 74. I mean, he had that great, Fowler shoots like a couple great rounds, like a 66, mm -hmm. but just doesn't put those four rounds together at the majors. And, uh, but JB Holmes was hilarious because he played with Brooks and he was at minus 10 in third place to start the day. And then he ended up shooting a plus 16. <laughs> <laughs> which is unbelievable to shoot at 87. He was shooting double bogeys, triple bogeys, double bogeys. I mean, you have to, to get mm -hmm. a plus finish with an 87. Um, but, uh, and Kepka, I was waiting. You get up early to watch it. You're all excited about 8.30, and you're ready you for Kepka. me. It's Kepka day. Uh, Kepka day, Kepka. <laughs> and the first four holes, four bogeys. I yeah. mean, he just put himself out of it. And he ended up, he battled, and he tied for fourth, or uh, he ended up tied for fourth. He finished with a six under. Uh, but those, I mean, he, had an eagle, he actually had an eagle on the seventh hole, so you thought there was a chance to do it. But it was just not a good day. I mean, so he just, he, he, he didn't, yeah, he wasn't in contention. And I think if there wasn't, if Lowry didn't have such a huge lead, I mean, he was like nine strokes behind Lowry most of the day. So I was following him on the computer, but he just couldn't come in. But uh, but Lowry, you know, Fleetwood, you're waiting for Fleetwood to make a move on Lowry all day. Didn't but it really was, have a chance. It know, was like Lowry four strokes or five strokes. I mean, even when it was pouring, there was on the on the fifth hole, it was absolutely pouring. Lowry was driving in rain and wind, and he buried the hole to go to 17 under. I mean, he it was like unbelievable. Like standing there, and the, he's just perfect. I mean, he grew up in Ireland. He's used to this. I mean, after nine holes, he had five strokes ahead of Fleetwood. And then he actually bogeyed on 11 and 15, but Fleetwood was bogeying too. Fleetwood had finished with a 74. So it wasn't like that uh, everybody was playing poorly. Lowry was just able to stay ahead. I mean, uh, he birdied 15 to go. At the 15th hole, he was he birdied it. Fleetwood double bogeyed, so he's up by six strokes. And, you know, just really cruised on in. It was night. The ending up when he walked and all the fans rushed in. Tiger like it players. Mm -hmm. It was exciting to watch that. And uh, it, was, it was a good win for Lowry. But uh, and his daughter Iris was wearing this like yellow raincoat, and his wife ran out. And I mean, it's a good story. I mean, Lowry definitely for someone who blew that lead at the U.S. Open when it was in Oakmont in Pittsburgh to come back and have that lead and win in Ireland, and everyone was really proud of him. And uh, Kepka showed a lot of class. He stayed there, congratulated yeah. him. Of course, all the Irish uh, players were there. Um, so, and this is a humongous story in Ireland. Humongous story. It's the biggest thing to have an Irish golfer win the first time in 68 years in Ireland, the the championship. So very cool, um, Ira. Before we get to uh, Terrence Mann and C.Y. Young, which is a great interview we'll have in uh, just about a minute. Pacquiao fought the, this past weekend. You think he looks as good as he ever has? I love Manny Pacquiao. I love how he fights, and I love, and the last few years he hasn't fought like that. People remember Mayweather, he didn't fight like that. But in this fight, he, his footwork was tremendous. He's moving forward. He was, he knocked, Keith Thurman is a champion. Keith Thurman was undefeated. Keith Thurman was, was, uh, was borderline favored when the, when the fight was first made. It was uh, Keith Thurman's a great fighter, not just a good fighter, a great fighter. Pacquiao took it to him. I mean, I had Pacquiao winning 
uh, about eight, eight to four in terms of rounds. I mean, the first the first round, mm-hmm. he knocked Thurman down as he's backing up. And Thurman came back. I mean, Pacquiao controlled the early part of the fight, and Thurman came back at the and, and was winning some of the middle rounds. But Pacquiao hung in there, and it was a fun fight to watch. If you can watch a replay on HBO or whatever, or Fox, I don't know where they're going to replay this again. But I really thought it was a very entertaining fight. They were all throwing punches. Thurman hung in there, and uh, and I just thought it was the style. It was the footwork. It was like what you like about boxing. It wasn't just dancing around. Pacquiao was throwing punches and moving forward. And Thurman just Thurman said after the fight, I, I wasn't as fast. I didn't have the coordination. I didn't have the speed. I couldn't block him. And uh, as I said, it was a split decision, though. There was one judge who gave it to, uh, to uh, um, Thurman, which I thought was wrong. The other judges had it 7-5 for Manny Pacquiao. And now it was announced that Errol Spence is fighting Sean Porter. The other two champions, they're going to fight in... Uh, in uh, September, and Pacquiao probably will fight the winner there. And uh, in UFC this weekend, Max Holloway and Frankie Edgar fight for the featherweight the championship of the world. So Holloway's the favorite. So that should be an interesting fight. I remember where you headed this week. Uh, probably LA. I'm going to go to the Dodgers. Probably Wednesday night, Dodgers Angels. Uh, that'll be exciting. Crosstown we'll rivalry. Yeah, yeah Crosstown. They they play th- those two games uh, in inter- interleague games should be interesting, and it'll be get to see Mike Trout mm-hmm. and uh, Otani and those. So it'll be interesting to see that. Yeah, you don't go to many Angels games. You're always over the Dodgers. Well, this will be. It's going to be in LA. It's going to be the Dodgers. They'll mm-hmm. be at the Dodger Stadium, so it'll be exciting to see there. But uh, there's there's definitely a rivalry. I mean, the Dodgers had the greatest rivalry, of course, with San Francisco, mm-hmm. but there is that cross down and now look if the angels get good it'll be like the lakers and the clippers battling very cool um right now we've got to take you to um terrence mann and cy young we caught up with them a little bit earlier in the week it's a great interview stick around i run sports it's Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Two huge guests on the line with us. It's Charlton C.Y. Young, FSU assistant basketball coach, and also Terrence Mann, just drafted 48th overall in the 2019 draft forward for the L.A. Clippers. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on Iron Sports. And Ira, I know you're excited. Yes, um, I met Terrence and C.Y. at the draft last month, and uh, it was it was they were I was sitting in section 24, and Terrence was in the in the that section, and then he was called down after he was drafted, and and uh, so I guess to see why. I want to want to ask you first. When I I turned around, you guys were right behind me, and you were you were really crying after he was drafted. What was the thoughts in your mind? What did, how'd you feel the moment you heard Terrence's name called by uh, Deputy Commissioner Tatum? Uh, you know, it was a uh, for me. Um, it was a a dream come true because it's something that I've dreamt for him, and we've been working for together since he was in the seventh grade. Uh, so for it to finally happen. And, uh, you know, not many people know just how hard this young man has worked to get there. Like, he, he, he did it the old-fashioned way, uh, a four-year guy, got his degree, uh, came in uh, kind of an uh, unsung recruit. Uh, everybody knows he was talented, but still didn't get the national recognition that uh, I probably thought he deserved. Uh, and most guys... Uh, they fade to black when they're in that situation. They get frustrated. They stop working. They get unfocused. Uh, but Terrence, uh, from seventh grade to the day he got his name called, uh, he was committed to getting to this point and worked his tail off to get there. So it was, it was an unbelievable family for, uh, un- unbelievable feeling uh, for me uh, personally to, to, to be by his side the whole time getting there. 
Terrence, you have an unusual background. You grew up and your mother was a college basketball coach. So you got to, from the earliest of ages, I, I read the article where it said you used to guard the basketballs before the, the games or practices. And, and then you also went with her on recruiting trips and she coached at St. John's, LIU. And then at, she's now at Rhode Island now. Talk about growing up in a, with a mother that, and being involved like that in basketball at such a young age. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty crazy. Um, you know, she was on the road and stuff. But, you know, one thing she always taught me when I did go to her practices was to respect coaching. And, you know, I think that took me a long way, you know, giving me the ability to listen to what they have to say and just respect, you know, the game, coaching, respect your teammates and stuff like that. And I think it helped me. And, and your mom, I was reading somewhere, said your mother debriefs you after every game. So she gives you her 20 minutes uh, uh, unfiltered, I guess, commentary. And how does that go in terms of her breaking it down? Uh, sometimes it could be frustrating, but, you know, she always tells me the truth. Uh, she always keeps it, you know, kind of 100 with me. So, uh, you know, she doesn't, she leaves everything on the table. Anything she sees, she tells me, and she's always being honest. See why? Oh, go ahead. Uh, I I I was his protection from his mother for the last eight years. His mother is, <laughs> is tough. Definitely. Uh, so I kind of, you know, Terrence and I together uh, kind of uh, convinced her to, to let us handle the basketball stuff and, and she'd be more mom as it, as it went along. But, you know, she deserves a lot of credit. She did an unbelievable job raising a great young man, a respectful young man. But she played at Georgetown, uh, was a great player at Georgetown. And um, she saw a lot in Terrence Young and really pushed to bring it out. Uh, Mama, uh, Mama LaForce didn't always do it the right way, but her heart was in the right place. <laughs> and uh, we, we, we got through it, and, and he, he became a great player. And uh, she has a lot to do about that. And, you know, he's from a very, very loving family. You know, people talk about his mother a lot, but his father is a huge part of his life and, and did a great job of, of, of managing Terrence and giving him confidence. Uh, his grandparents uh, are fabulous. Both of them were at a lot of games and really supported him through the highs and lows. So, you know, Terrence couldn't fail because he was just from a great family structure, period. Well, Terrence, you, you were the New Hampshire player of the year. You went to Tilton High School in New Hampshire. And then you're looking at what colleges to go to. I, I saw you're considering Indiana, Iowa, Maryland, and you chose Florida State. Uh, what was the thinking of coming down here to Florida besides it's nice and warm and the weather's great? Uh, I think just CY in general. Uh, I didn't take a visit to Florida State before I committed. I didn't know really anything about it. I just went off the faith of, you know, Coach Young just telling me that I can come there, change the program. You know, it was in the ACC. So it was basically just a dream come true to play at a high level like that. Um, and, you know, that was one of the only teams, I think the only team in the ACC that was recruiting me. So, you know, just off the faith of CY telling me I could be a pro, I can come there, change the program. And we did exactly what we, what we said from the beginning. And you came in with a with a lot of Dwayne Bacon and also uh, Malik Beasley, uh, two other professional players. It must have been exciting to to come with this class because I guess Florida State hadn't been to the tournament in five years, and then suddenly you come with your those other two and and sort of trying to change the direction of the program a little bit. So talk about that, come you know coming into the program with uh, two other stars like that. I mean, yeah. So before we got there, that's what we what our goal was, you know, to go there, change it all. Uh, we knew that they haven't been to the tournament. We knew that they were in the middle. Uh, towards the bottom of the ACC and wanted to go there and change everything. And, you know, we talked about that when we was in high school. We wanted to go up there and change things, and it worked. And then a CY yeah, meant... It, it was really... Go ahead, CY. I said, it's really unbelievable how it, it came together. It's kind of destiny. Uh, Gene Chris Kamaji was in that class also, who's 
probably going to sign with the Philadelphia 76ers on a uh, free agent deal. So all four of those guys, what year was that, Terrence? 2015? Yeah, 2015. The 2015 class of uh, Terrence Mann, Dwayne Bacon, Malik Beasley, and Gene Chris Kamaji, that class kind of started a basketball revolution at Florida State. And uh, Dwayne and and, uh, Gene Chris Kamaji played on the same AAU team, Showtime. They, They were very close also. Uh, so, uh, with the help of Terrence and Dwayne and Malik, you know, we all kind of got together and said, listen, if we can put this class together, uh, you guys could take it to another level. And uh, it was a place where they were needed and not just wanted. And, uh, you know, most kids, they make decisions for the wrong reasons. They make it for bushes and buildings and, and, and for the name that's on the front of the jersey instead of, you know, making people decisions and, and for people that really care about them and want to want to develop them and help them grow and and I think Coach Hamilton and his leadership, once they all came and got a chance to really spend time with Coach Hamilton and the entire staff, not just me. We got a great staff uh, with, with Coach Hamilton being our CEO and, and Dennis Gates and Stan Jones, our strength coach, Mike Bradley. Uh, we had a guy that doesn't get enough credit who was over our life skills program who was an associate AD by the name of Derek Coles, who also did a lot with these kids off the court. Um, we had a team of people here that fit. Uh, and it just was a match made in heaven, and they won the all-time win in this class, you know, back to the NCAA, a Sweet 16, Elite 8, and four NBA players that developed, and uh, it's, it's just a special deal. That's why when you were behind us that night, Ira, it was a lot of emotion uh, because Terrence and I, uh, we've had a lot of dark times together where it wasn't so good, <laughs> where, we were, right. uh, where we were trying to figure it out and, we were fighting, and we had to get back in the gym, and we had to find a way to win some games. And, you know, Terrence had to deal with, uh, you know, not being Michael Jackson, but being Tito Jackson of the class and <laughs> having to wait his turn. And, and you know, it was just a lot to it. Uh, but to his credit, he was he was all about winning, and that was always first for him. He was always unselfish. Uh, he was an unbelievable uh Leader, holder of the torch, or leader of the torch for Florida State basketball, ambassador for Florida State basketball, and uh, he deserves a lot of credit, and we forever be indebted to Terrence for that. We're talking to C.Y. Young, uh, Florida State assistant basketball coach, and Terrence Mann, the former Florida State star who's now on the Clippers. Uh, Terrence, you, you, go, you come to Florida State as a freshman, and as C.Y. just said, you're playing 17 minutes a game, you're coming off the bench. Um, that must have been tough. And, you know, the way players do now, they, it's almost like they just transfer. It's like, if I'm not going to start my freshman year, uh, I'll just transfer. But you, you stuck it out. You stayed at Florida State, and then you come back as a sophomore, as a captain of the team, so and start every game your sophomore year. So wow. talk about what you were thinking in your mind and what you did between the freshman and sophomore year to stick it out and not just go like it seems like players today just you know just I'll, I'll transfer somewhere else yeah um it wasn't easy I'm not gonna sit here and act like it was easy to be able to do that um but I think just I think you know the confidence that my coaches gave me the confidence that my teammates gave me the wisdom that my coaches gave me you know making me learn early that everyone's path is different you know you can't just try to be like the next person because, you know, if you think about it that way, then you're not going to make it. You kind of got to understand that your path is going to be different. And, you know, if you do things the right way, if you get a good person on and off the court, you know, things will happen. You know, you trust God, things will happen. So I think that's what I just did. You know, I just try to stay focused. Um, You know, like I said, it wasn't easy, but, you know, I just the the confidence that everyone around me gave me kind of helped me, you know, propel through that mental struggle of, like you said, you know, not playing a lot. 
um, you know, seeing everyone around me succeeding and, play, and, and playing as much as they were playing. So I just think, like I said, just the, the strength of all the confidence that I had around me and the faith of God just helped me do it. And then you go for the, in the, your sophomore year, you lost Xavier in the second round in the tournament. But then your junior year, I was actually at, at Staples. Uh, you made it to the elite uh, or the Sweet 16 in Staples. And you beat Gonzaga, who was the number one seed. And then you lost to Michigan. Uh, but that, that Gonzaga game was great. You scored 18 points. And I remember the Florida State fans were going crazy. It was, it was a great atmosphere with Gonzaga. Like most of the arena was supporting Gonzaga. Then you had the Michigan fans. So it was pretty good. Talk about that junior year, that, that run you made to the Elite Eight. You were just one game away from making it to the Final Four. Yeah, that run was probably one of the most special times of my life just because, you know, we were doubted so much as a team. Um, you know, we I think we lost 85% of our scoring and rebounding that year uh, to the league. Um, Xavier Camay, Dwayne Bacon, Jonathan Isaac, they all left. Michael Ojo left, so kind of everybody was looking at us as uh, another rebuilding year for Florida State. Uh, we don't expect them to do good. So that year we kind of we had a chip on our shoulder. We started out strong. I think we finished a non-conference with on like ten and one or something like that. Um, and the one game we lost was at the buzzer. So we, you know, we played with a chip on our shoulder that whole year. We had some ups and downs due to injury in the conference play, but you know, everyone was kind of healthy for the most part when we hit that tournament time, and we knew what we were capable of. So, you know, I, I just think you know that year was very special to me, and this was probably one of the best years of my life, you know, thus far, just because we proved a lot of people wrong, and you know, that's kind of what I take pride in proving people wrong. And, you know, it went the way we wanted it. We went all the way to Elite Eight. You know, no one expected us to even make the tournament that year. Yeah, so CY, then coming to, to Terrence's senior year, he's not known as a good shooter at all, but suddenly his shooting was able to go from 25% to 39% from threes. And he actually this year shot a 50% from, from twos, too. So it, it must have been a lot of work. And, and talk about how he, because after his junior year, he wasn't a draftable player, but now suddenly he gets drafted after his senior year. Talk about the improvement of his shooting and what kind of work he put into uh, to become this, you know, the 3 and D type player that everyone's talking about, the Danny Greens, uh, the players that seem so popular here in, in the NBA. That's a great question. Uh, his, his journey towards becoming a shooter actually began his junior year. His junior year, he started to really turn the corner. And uh, he put a lot of time in, a lot of time in with myself, a lot of time in by himself, a lot of time in with our managers just rebounding with him, a lot of time coming in and watching film on his shot. Uh, his senior year was a beautiful thing to me because at one point, most of the ACC, people don't realize this, Terrence was shooting 46% from three for the majority of the ACC. And for probably 75% of the season was leading the ACC in three-point percentage. At the end of the year, people started guarding him a little different, and he dropped to like 39. But he really worked on improving his balance, his form, his hand placement, the trajectory of his shot. Uh, he was serious about it. And I knew that he was going to eventually be a good three-point shooter because he could always make free throws and make mid-range jays. Uh, and he's a gym rat. Uh, so, you know, in, in, this, in this day and age, uh, we live in a microwave generation. Everybody wants everything in 30 seconds. Uh, but if you learn from your grandmother and your older people that the, the best meals, they take a little time to prepare. Uh, for Terrence, I'm really proud. I always knew he was a pro. You know what I mean? I, I knew... You know, in my mind, I thought he was Jimmy Butler. I thought that he was going to develop into a guy that could do everything at 6'7", 225 pounds. I thought if I was emotional and he wasn't as good as I thought he was because I loved him so much and he was at least Josh Howard, 
either way, he was a 10- to 12-year pro. But I think Terrence is a, a, a poster child for what college basketball needs to be. People, kids need to develop. Terrence knew that he needed to get better. You know, I mean, that's the one thing that he always had, even when he was young. He was always realistic about where he was and where he wanted to go. Uh, not many people believe that he was a pro. I don't even think his mom believed she should get mad at him because he wouldn't shoot the ball. And uh, I offered him a scholarship when he was in the ninth grade. I went to see him, and he had like seven points, but he had like 13 rebounds, like nine assists, like six steals, and like five blocks. I mean, he was just like a unbelievable uh, basketball exhibition, a guy who really understood everything that was going on around him and made winning plays and made people better. So I, I fell in love with him from then, and I believed in his basketball ability. I just knew that he was a raw offensive talent that we had to develop. Well, if you're high character and you're a gym rat, you're going to get better. Uh, a lot of these kids are infatuated. Their parents are infatuated with one and done. And they don't understand that the real one and done is when you go to the NBA in one year, and after one year you're out of there, you're done. You're in Europe or you're, you're out of the league because you're not prepared to stay. Uh, my proudest moment was going to the summer league and watching Terrence play in Vegas and show people that I'm an NBA player right now and I'm ready to play and I'm ready to stay and I'm ready to contribute. And that's because of four years of development. And Terrence is, is going to have a 12 to 15 year career because of that, because he got the proper preparation in college to prepare him to be a long-term NBA player. And, uh, I hope more kids, more parents, more coaches look at a guy like Terrence and say, okay, this is the route we need to take so that when we do get to the NBA, we're ready to stay. Yeah, Terrence, your, your senior year, you, you had a great, a great year. You make it to the finals. You beat Virginia, the eventual champion, in the semis of the ACC tournament. And then you make it to the NCAAs. And you go against John Moran in, a, in the high-profile game that everybody's watching because they saw what Moran had done his uh, the first game. And you really shut him down. I mean, I know he didn't finish with 28 points, but it was a blowout and you were up by so many points. Talk about that game in terms of uh, – and you, you, you had to guard him a lot of that time during the game. So talk about um, just – I guess the Virginia game and then beating Murray State uh, and advancing to the next game. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, that, that was a good game. Um, a good game for us. We were all hitting on all cylinders. Um, our bench came in strong. Everybody kind of played the right way. So, you know, I wouldn't credit it to me shutting him down. I think the the game plan, you know, the defensive game, game plan that our coaches put together was what really worked. Um, you know, we were able to do things the right way in order to help you know, limit their opportunities of scoring at a high level like they were doing all tournament. So, you know, it was just really the game plan. It wasn't so much me. Yeah, and then after the season's over, what's the process? I mean, did you go, you went to the Combine, and did you get, did you, did you, which teams did you end up working out for in terms of practicing? And when did you feel like, did the Clippers let you know early on that they were interested in you, or was it a surprise when you were drafted by them? Uh, no, they didn't let me know. It was really a surprise. You know, I, I worked out for 13 different teams um, in like the span of two weeks, two and a half weeks. So it was pretty crazy. And, you know, you're going from city to city, just staying there for a day and a half, working out, not knowing what your future holds for that night on June 20th. So, I mean, when it happened, it happened. I didn't know, you know, they didn't really tell me much. When you were working out, did you work out by yourself or did it actually bring in, how did you play with other guys or how did those teams, did every team? No, team... Yeah, they brought in. Every team was uh, every team was really different. Um, most teams brought in six guys, uh, mainly you know I would say four guys in the position and then two big guys. 
And, you know, you're just out there playing for, you know, them to like you, trying to do things the right way. That's good. That's good. And then you go to the Summer League. Now, the Summer League used to be nobody cared about, but now it's like broadcast on TV. Every every bar you go to has it on. And you ended up having some good games. One game you almost had a triple-double. Another game I think you had 16 rebounds. So talk about that Summer League experience because you go just from drafted and like a week later you're playing NBA basketball games. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. But, you know, I think the Summer League is great. You know, you're playing against guys you really played against, you know, all summer, all year in college basketball. So it's kind of just like another level for guys to get comfortable, you know, with the NBA stuff, but playing against guys you're familiar with. So, you know, it's a good step in the right direction uh, for us rookies because, you know, it kind of gets us comfortable playing the NBA basketball and then comfortable playing against guys. So, you know, it was fun. It was a fun experience. It also helped that I was playing against, playing with my former teammate, Fiondo Kevin Gelly. So we were kind of out there comfortable with each other, um, you know, and the Clippers had us playing a similar system that we played in college. So we just, you know, fit right in and strive. And then, um, so you, you you get drafted, and then besides starting the summer league, you find out well you got two new additions to your team, and suddenly the Clippers go from being maybe the seventh or eighth seed to the favorite to win the NBA title. That must like did you have any indication that they were they were going to go that George and Kawhi Leonard were going to come to LA, or did it just were you just learned like how we learned over the internet? Um, I knew that you know Leonard was definitely a big time you know target that we had. Um, you know, that we were trying to get. But the Paul George thing definitely shocked me. You know, I didn't know anything about that. Um, you know, so that was that definitely came as a big surprise. I think it happened at the same time. So I was in my hotel room and started coming up on my phone, and they said they traded some picks. So I thought me and my teammate Fiondi got traded too. <laughs> no, no, they didn't <laughs> want to trade. <laughs> yeah, we didn't know what was going on. But, you know, then they, they all texted us. They told us, you know, exactly what was happening. Um, you know, we were just excited to get out there training camp with these guys it must be fun to be on a team that now as you're playing in LA it is now viewed as the top one of the top two or three teams in the NBA and you might you're going to play a role like it's not you're not going to play 40 minutes a game but you're going to have a role in games and come in and 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 that should be exciting because you're going to be playing games that are on prime time you're going to be playing games in the playoffs and maybe you make it to the NBA finals uh as a as a rookie that's that must be very exciting in terms of people are going to be watching you and I mean look at a guy like Fred Van Fleet last year for Toronto who was undrafted and end up being this one of the stars of the NBA finals mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be amazing uh, to be able to be a part of an organization like that who's, you know, projected to be one of the top teams in the NBA, especially my rookie year. So, you know, I'm just going to do me, um, you know, try to, you know, play hard, try to impact the game as much as I can to have a great role on the team and, you know, whatever happens, happens. Well, that's a good attitude to have. Um, CY, just one last question for you in terms of what what, what do you see him, as Terrence, at, at, at the Clippers? I mean, you must have been super excited to see George and Leonard go to that team. Oh, man, it was unbelievable. I mean, this, this guy, I tell him all the time, like, he is, he's touched by God. It's just destiny for him, you know what I mean, just to fall into that situation. I mean, it's a, it's a great chance that he, he could be playing in the NBA Finals next year. And, you know, that's a legitimate worst-case scenario, Western Conference Finals. I mean, with a team like they have now, you know they're going to the playoffs. So for him to be blessed to be in this position, I'm telling him, man, don't take anything for granted. Stay focused. Stay humble. uh, Continue to work. Stick with what has gotten you to this point. Uh, But, you know, it's just really exciting. It's big for him and his family. It's big for Mafandu Kamigeli and his family. And it's big for our program to have our two guys playing with a NBA championship contender. And, uh, you know, even watching how people respond to them out at the summer league, you know, it's, it's totally different than just 180 days ago. Like, 
you know, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard being added to what they already had. They they already were really good. I mean, people forgetting about Lewis Williams. Lewis Williams is a gorilla, like one of the one of the premier scorers in the NBA. Uh, so they're going to be really good. But just to talk about Terrence and the draft process, uh, you probably saw a lot of emotion from Terrence and myself because the draft process is crazy. Uh, a lot of things Terrence didn't know about the draft, I knew. You know, it was just like a roller coaster. You know, it was a he almost went at 29 uh, in, to, to San Antonio. Uh, there were some teams thinking about buying a pick to take him in the first round. And, there were some teams that said they were going to take him at 36 or 38. So you, we go to the draft, and I'm not telling him everything, but I know we could go from anywhere from 29 to 45. You know what I mean? And it, it's just it's nerve-wracking to be in that situation. Uh, I will give the Clippers some credit. They were knee-deep on Mafondo Kamigeli and Terrence all year. They, they did their due diligence. Uh, I want to say – the Clippers even came down to see Terrence and, and watched him work out in Atlanta and just spent the day just watching him. So I knew that their interest was high. You just never knew when it was going to actually come through, and it's not real until they actually call your name. So um, Terrence did it the hard way. He went and played at Portsmouth. He went and played at the G League Combine. He went and played at the Chicago Combine, and he outplayed people. Uh, he was one of the top five performers at each one of those. So I knew he was going to play well at the summer league because, you know, you judge people on consistent behavior. But he earned it, and he did a great job interviewing. You know, that's the other part of it that people don't talk about. you got to understand, when you, you're about to get drafted and you're meeting with these teams in the organization, um, it's a job interview. And you got to sit down and you got to say the right things and present yourself, and you got to be a high-character guy. And uh, Terrence definitely checked all checked all those boxes. So uh, draft night was uh, was the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 epitome of the. It was the big finale, and when it all came together and was all over, it was just it was like a million pounds off of all of our our back just just to finally have a home. But uh, he did an unbelievable job in the process and earned it. Everything he's gotten right now, he's, he's earned it the old-fashioned way. Well, Terrence, I've been a huge fan of yours when your time at Florida State. I think you are the perfect player with today's NBA. When you look at a guy, like I said, Danny Green, um, continually as someone who can play defense and shoot the threes and just play in multiple positions because sometimes you could play uh, two, three, or four positions uh, on the team. So I think, you know, I'm really looking forward to follow your career, and I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports because uh, I think it's, I think you're, as, as CY says, I think you're going to be in league a long time. So it'll be exciting to follow you throughout your entire career. Thank you. I really appreciate that, man. I really do. All right. Thanks a lot, CY. And thanks a lot, Terrence. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll be in touch with you, you know, maybe next year to see how, how this whole year came. And, and best of luck for to both of you.